Greetings and welcome to an Odyssey into Oratory. I'm your host, Dan Riley. I received an email recently asking me who my favorite speaker of all time is. It was a sincere question. I could have answered with one word, Cicero, thanked the Inquisitor and moved on. But then it dawned on me, this being such an obvious question, I'll dedicate a podcast to answering it. Cicero, by the way, is not my favorite. I won't dodge or obfuscate in responding to the question or select five people as my answer. Before this podcast is over, I will give you my definitive answer. But as I look back at my life, I would have cited a different speaker in every decade. And to my way of thinking, each of their contributions was indispensable on my path to arriving at a favorite. When we answer questions about preference, our answers reflect our state of being as much as they do our said preference. While honoring the intent of the questioner, let me first state my criteria for a favorite speaker. It would not be the speaker who the academicians claim made the largest impact on history, culture, or society. It will be highly personal. It will be that speaker who I resonated the most with at that time. Ultimately, my favorite speaker will be the one that had the greatest positive impact on my life. With that, let's explore the question. In my 20s, I might have said Abraham Lincoln. As I've said on a previous podcast, I memorized the Gettysburg Address from a young age, four score and seven years ago. Our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Lincoln had no speechwriter. He wrote that speech on the back of an envelope. It lasted all of three minutes, and it still reverberates today. And that the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. I should make it clear, in my early years, the only speakers that I was exposed to were politicians or historical figures. The only mediums that existed to hear speakers were television and radio. And they were not televising or broadcasting seminars back then. So I'll add another politician to the list, Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. She was the first African-American woman to be a keynote speaker at a national political convention. I found her tireless work for equal rights while battling multiple sclerosis inspiring. And as the daughter of a Baptist minister, she employed a speaking style that has always resonated with me. Speaking of Baptist ministers, it was in my 20s when I learned of the great dimensions of Dr. King's life. I read his autobiography, biographies about him, Let the Trumpet Sound and others. I grew to better understand the context of his great oratory and the historical struggles he so eloquently spoke about. More than spoke about, the vast movement he led to find justice. If my emailer friend had asked me who I found to be the most inspirational speaker of all time, the answer would have been just three words and an abbreviation, Martin Luther King, Jr. Unique among speakers, his speeches were akin to songs for me. When you hear a song, one you absolutely love, you don't say, okay, that was good, heard enough. I'll file this for future reference. No, no. You listen to it over and over again. You put it on a special playlist. You play it in your car. It plays on your computer. You listen to that song literally hundreds of times. 
and when drinking beer or sipping wine, you'll turn it up even louder. And you may well do this for decades. Many of King's speeches had that quality. I can name three off the top of my head. The drum major instinct. I've been to the mountaintop and I had a dream. Staying with my 20s still, President John F. Kennedy had long been assassinated. But as an Irish Catholic with parents who hailed from Massachusetts, I had ample exposure to him. In those days, every Irish family had two framed photos on their mantle, one of Kennedy, the other of the Pope. Among the speeches I had memorized at a young age was his 1961 inaugural address. Let the word go forth, let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Moving now to my 30s, this was a time when I began in earnest to pursue personal development in a serious way. As with anyone who has ever endeavored such an undertaking, I was wowed by Napoleon Hill, the author of the seminal book in what I refer to as the genre of success literature, Think and Grow Rich. Hill, a quirky speaker with a southern twang, wouldn't make my pantheon today, but in my fourth decade, he would have been a contender. I found his ideas forceful and stimulating. He may well have been the first mainstream author to unabashedly introduce metaphysics to the success equation. When I say mainstream, I'm using the term because that book, Think and Grow Rich, written during the Great Depression, as of today, has sold over 105 million copies. I can still hear Jim Rohn, as if it were yesterday, at one of his seminars, thundering away, Think and Grow Rich. Don't you need to own that book, Think and Grow Rich? Yes, sir, I do. More on Mr. Rohn later. This was also the time of Ronald Wilson Reagan's presidency. In my opinion, in current times, there has been no politician better than Reagan at delivering a prepared speech. No doubt his training as an actor added to his effectiveness as a speaker. But there was another undeniable quality to Reagan's elocution, a natural optimism which imbued almost every speech. An optimism that transcended political affiliation. After all, he won 49 of 50 states in his re-election campaign. And so popular was he among the members of the opposing party, his name became an adjective modifying the noun Democrat, a Reagan Democrat. There were two reoccurring themes in his speeches throughout his presidency that helped drive the optimism felt in the national psyche. It's morning in America. And of course, there was his vision for America, a shining city upon a hill. Reagan borrowed this mystical vision of America from one of our first pilgrims, John Winthrop. And as I've mentioned on a previous podcast, his eulogy for the victims of the shuttle disaster in 1986 might have been his finest hour as a speaker. Closing that speech with the lines from a sonnet written by a 19-year-old World War II fighter pilot, John McGee, they slipped the surly bounds of earth to touch the face of God. Oh my. Indulge me as I take a little detour here. It was during the Reagan years that I developed what has become a lifelong fascination with three different epics in history. The Lost Continent of Atlantis, the Roman Empire, and the Arthurian Legends. 
King Arthur, Excalibur, the Knights of the Round Table, Sir Lancelot, Guinevere, and the Enchantress presiding over the Mists of Avalon, Morgana Le Fay. Oh, scholars are divided on whether Camelot was real or legend. Put me firmly in the camp of believing it was real. Just like Jack Kennedy, I love this line from the musical of the same name. Don't let it be forgotten that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. As for Atlantis, it had to be. It is deeply embedded in our collective psyche. We have casino resorts created in its image. Edgar Cayce, the sleeping prophet, talked extensively about it. Plato and Sir Francis Bacon both wrote about the lost continent. Every culture on the planet has ancient stories about a great and devastating flood. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed, there was an Atlantis. The rise and fall of the Roman Empire. What an instructive piece of history. The parallels between its epic collapse and the Western governments today are uncanny. They are too uncanny to ignore. But that's a subject for a different podcast. I took this detour while talking about Reagan because I give him some credit for inspiring me to better learn history. He too was a student of history, incorporated many historical events into his speeches, and connected their relevance to the world in which he governed. I'm talking here mostly about the early years in Reagan's public life and the early years of his presidency. I would concede he suffered significant cognitive decline in his final years in office. Back to the main road and moving into my 40s. During this time, I read every book Ogbandino wrote. While conceding intellectually to myself, these books are kind of corny. I love them nonetheless. No doubt his compelling life story influenced my opinion. He was born into a modest family of immigrant parents and lost his mother, with whom he was extremely close, due to a heart attack when he was just a teenager. He enlisted in the service at the time of World War II, where he eventually became a decorated fighter pilot. After the war, he married and had a daughter, but lost his way due to alcoholism. His wife and daughter eventually left him, and he more or less became a vagabond. In his late 30s, he finds himself in a Cleveland pawn shop contemplating buying a gun to commit suicide, but he claimed he couldn't even find the courage to do that. It was shortly after that incident he began reading books in the self-help section of the library, which he used as a shelter. In 10 short years, he went from a bum to editor-in-chief of Success Magazine and then on to author 17 books, one of which, The Greatest Salesman in the World, became the best-selling book of all time for sales professionals. As for his speaking style, I found it syrupy and corny as well, and too religious for me. But you know what? I must concede. I love to listen to him speak, so he must be mentioned. There was another author and speaker who caught my attention as well during this time, Marianne Williamson. I must have needed some yin energy to balance all the yang speakers I followed. I had been exposed to her previously, but I was a little iffy with the Course in Miracles stuff. At the time, I hadn't yet untangled my own spiritual beliefs from the religious indoctrination of 13 years of Catholic education. Since then, I've read A Course in Miracles and two of her books, Return to Love and The Gift of Change. People who are not familiar with her and have fallen prey to the characters that have been created do themselves a disservice. She is a formidable intellect and a terrific writer and speaker. 
Talk about clean speech. No ums, ahs, or filler words. And she can talk almost as fast as an auctioneer. Let's go to my sixth decade. As I said earlier, I began studying history more keenly. The days of memorizing a few facts to pass a test were gone. And as a lover of words and oratory, how could I not study Winston Churchill? I am confident, however, that had I known him, I would not have liked him. But his speaking prowess cannot be ignored. Scholars are right to list his speech. We shall fight on the beaches among the best speeches of all time. One could also argue several of his speeches were among the most consequential of all time, given the events of World War II. Never was so much owed by so many to so few. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty, and so bear ourselves that, if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will say, this was their finest hour. Soaring, eloquent, no denying that. A driver of Churchill told of a time he was asked to pull over to the side of the road just prior to arriving at their destination. After about a half hour's time, the driver addressed Churchill. Mr. Prime Minister, can I ask what we are doing? Churchill's response, I am preparing for any impromptu remarks I get asked to make. That's how serious he took his communication skills. The world noticed. In 1953, Winston Churchill was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. But you can't mention Churchill without mentioning his nemesis, Mahatma Gandhi a contemporary of Churchill's, who also gave speeches regarded by scholars to be among the best and most consequential of all time. His life and his speaking style were both antithetical to that of the Prime Minister. Among the many derogatory comments Churchill had for Gandhi, he called him a seditious little temple lawyer, posing as a fake courage, strutting around half-naked. Gandhi's quit India speech was considered the turning point in India's long struggle to win independence from Britain. Here is a mantra, a short one that I give you. You may imprint it on your hearts and let every breath of yours give expression to it. The mantra is, do or die. We shall either free India or die in the attempt. We shall not live to see the perpetuation of our slavery. Do or die. The idiom still lives in our lexicon today. We have finally come to that place where I tell you who my favorite speaker of all time is, but first the runner-up, and that is Ralph Waldo Emerson. It is unfortunate, like Lincoln, we have no audio recordings of his voice. It is a tough call to have a favorite speaker and not even have heard his voice. Most people think of Emerson primarily as a minister or writer, but he made his living from lecturing. In fact, he gave around 1,600 of them. If he lived in our times, it would be many times that amount given our mode of transportation compared with his. I first became interested in Emerson because he was quoted so often by many of the authors I had read or listened to, especially Earl Nightingale. So I endeavored to discover him for myself. But boy, was he hard to understand, at least for me. I needed to read his essays several times before I could make any sense of them. After several readings of his writings, interpreters of his work, and biographies on him, I gradually came to understand Emerson. A quick aside on Earl Nightingale. I didn't include him in my speaker's pantheon, 
because I consider him more of a radio broadcaster than a speaker. But make no mistake, he's been a big influence in my life. To my way of thinking, Emerson, more than any person I've ever come across, understood how our world works. He was able to put into words concepts that don't typically lend themselves to words. He could capture and define with the most inspirational prose the spiritual underpinnings of our reality. Apparently, I'm not the only person to think so. The immortal Emerson is among the most quoted of all Americans. Now, as for my favorite speaker, I mentioned him earlier, Emmanuel James Roan, a.k.a. Jim Roan, a self-proclaimed farm boy from Idaho. His youth was spent in typical farm life fashion. After high school, he attended one year of college. Leaving college to get married and start a family, he went to work for Sears Roebuck. Shortly after that, he met a man that soon became his mentor, Earl Schof. Roan has often said, this remarkable man changed my life. Schof had found unusual success with a direct sales organization. He recruited Roan and went on to mentor him intensely for the next several years. Back in the 60s, Roan became a millionaire at the age of 31 under Schof's tutelage. The focus of Schof's mentorship was not business. It was personal development, a concept erstwhile completely foreign to Roan. If you work hard on your jobs, you can make a living. If you work hard on yourselves, you can make a fortune, Schof often reminded Rome. The aphorisms, witticisms that Rome shared regarding their relationship are too numerous to account here. Rome liked to tell a funny story of Schof seeing his paycheck from Sears. Look, this is all the company pays. Rome was out of it. No, no, look, this is all they pay. Look, here's my paycheck. Schof said no. This is not all the company pays. There are others that they pay 5, 10, 20, 50 times that amount. That's all they pay you. Shortly after his initial success, Roan moved to Beverly Hills, California. It was there that a neighbor and member of the Rotary Club asked him to attend a meeting to share his success story. Roan titled the speech, Farm Boy Makes It to Beverly Hills his new career was launched. He went on to lecture and speak all over the world for the next 40 years. He addressed over 6,000 audiences containing over 4 million people and authored numerous books and audio programs. It was through these programs that I came to know Jim Rohn. Because I had long commutes to work, I was constantly listening to audio programs from Earl Nightingale's company. For decades, Jim Rohn was my constant companion. Eventually, I would attend his seminar. It was he, more than anyone else, that convinced me to start my own personal development program. To the degree that I was successful in the grocery business, I owe a lot to Jim Rohn. Sure, I had great mentors in the company, but their help was mostly with navigating and positioning me within the corporate landscape. Rome helped me become somebody worthy of navigating and positioning. As a speaker, he was captivating, interesting, inspiring, and funny. While we are all unique, he was really unique as a speaker. He didn't have that stentorian voice as do many popular speakers. Often it was high-pitched and twangy, but with a wide range of variety. 
If I could do a good imitation, I would, but I can't, so I won't. He could speak for hours without notes. He had impeccable timing. His pauses and facial expressions were on par with some of our greatest entertainers. Yes, Jim Rohn deserves his lofty perch in my pantheon. I miss him, but still listen to him often. I don't like cliches, but I'll throw one in here. Jim Rohn is an American treasure. For my part, that's all there is. This is Dan Riley taking you on an odyssey into oratory. Until next time, throw up those bowlines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds, run the moon now. We are excited to announce the launch of an odyssey into oratory from speaker to spellbinder. This new dynamic and interactive speech training program was created specifically for the changing world we find ourselves in. In a business career spanning 40 years, from bagging groceries all the way to the executive suite, Dan has attended and delivered several hundred presentations and speeches. Throughout his odyssey, he has completed several prestigious executive speech programs. He is a four-time graduate of the Dale Carnegie course and a decades-long Toastmaster. But most of all, he is a lifetime student of the great orators, past and present. In combining his years of experience, study, and training, he has distilled and synthesized these lessons to create an online seven-week training course. While this course can benefit anyone looking to acquire or improve their public speaking skills, it was designed specifically for those working in a corporate or entrepreneurial environment. With his vast experience in the marketplace, Dan's students will receive insights and communication strategies that are not offered in the traditional speech training program. It is an integrated course in that it includes many other components of personal development that will transform good speakers into spellbinders. For more information on how to enroll in Dan's course from speaker to spellbinder, Contact us at anodysseyintooratory at gmail.com. Additionally, you can find Dan's blog at spiritualsideofsuccess.blog.